Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another weekly market recap here at the end of the week with my good friend Lance Roberts. Lance, buddy, um, my, my brain hurts. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make sense of today's explosive jobs numbers. I just can't figure it all out. Um, I also am having trouble really understanding the market's reaction to Powell's presser, and we can get into the reasons for that why. But anyways, those are the two big things to talk about today, uh, the, the brand new jobs numbers and uh, obviously the, the Fed uh, announcement and Powell's presser this week. Um, let's see. Uh, let me just ask you as we sort of start this. So markets obviously initially responded really well to what Powell said. Um, is is this a sell the rip scenario here, or is this a new game? Is it is it now you know happy trails for the bulls ahead? If you just take a look at all the technical data right now, we've been talking about this for the last several weeks. There's been a significant improvement in both sentiment as well as breadth of the market, as well as technical indicators themselves, um, which clearly show right now that the bear market's been canceled. So, you know, this it's kind of a we're back to a buy the dip mode right now, at least for the markets, until those technical setups really kind of change here. All right. Well, look, I want to give you credit, Lance, because you have done a really good job over many weeks on this program um, trying to bring balance to a lot of the data we talk about. Um, a lot of the data, a lot of the, 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 the macro data uh, has been pretty bad. And honestly, today's jobs numbers aside, most of it continues to get even worse. Um, so it's easy to fall into a mindset of, hey, you know, the, the markets then have to you know, roll over here at some point in time. And you have you know, many times said, hey, we have to watch the tape because the market's doing what's the market's doing, whether we agree with it or not. And we have to be prepared that, uh, you know, our thesis might not 100%, 100% manifest on the timeline we think it will. And of course, you know, the, the markets are strewn with the carcasses of people who positioned for what they were 100% sure should happen, but the markets don't really care about shoulds oftentimes. You're and nodding I, as I'm saying I, all this. Well, I'm just saying, you know, and actually it's, you know, I, we wrote an article, uh, I think last week or maybe week before, I can't remember now, um, on the website talking about the contrarian trade of the market, this contrarianism idea, which is, you know, historically when everybody's kind of on one side of the camp. And, and again, you're right, professionals, retail investors, everybody were positioned for this kind of recessionary bear market next leg down. But that actually provides the fuel for a, a very strong reversal in markets. And, and since the beginning of January, that's exactly what's happened. And we've had a very strong reversal. And now what's happening is that as that market reverses, all these people that were really short the market or really bearishly hedged are having to reverse all those positions, which is only pushing prices up further. So it, it just kind of starts to feed on itself a bit um, as we go forward. All right. Well, look, I, I'm going to put up a chart here that uh, an investor friend sent me, which shows the performance of the NASDAQ uh, this year versus the performance of the NASDAQ in the past 20 years. And it's off to the best start in 20 years. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so um, I know it's probably way too early to tell, but you know, when I sort of asked, is this sort of like a sell the rip type of thing? Because um, one, you have cautioned us at, at many rallies in the past, uh, over the past year, this is probably a bear market rally, you know, sell into strength. 
So is this a sell into strength moment? Do you look at a chart like this and see the the relative outperformance and say, you know, it, it may be getting ahead of itself, things just might be moving too far too fast here? Um, or is this a breakout that you think still has a lot more legs to run? So that, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, <laughs> so look, you got to separate these out into it's actually two questions. The first question is, has the market gone too far too fast? Second question is, is this just a bear market rally that is going to fail and, and we're going to go lower? First question first. Correct. Um, has Good the market questions. gone too yes. far? Yeah. Has the market gone too far too fast? Yes. We are overbought three standard deviations on multiple levels uh, above moving averages for the NASDAQ, as well as the S&P, small cap, mid caps. Emerging markets are all extremely gold, all extremely overbought due for a correction. So, yes, you are going to get a correction. Uh, and that actually kind of started on Friday. We were, you know, uh, markets kind of started off week uh, Friday morning back at the employment numbers rallied back actually uh, to almost break even actually positive for a moment on the NASDAQ, uh, then sell, sold off into the close on Friday. So but again, that's not surprising because markets had gotten so extended so quickly. And as we've talked about before, technical indicators, you know, measure the market and in terms of price movements. And we kind of stretched that rubber band as far as we could in one direction. So it's got to relax before it can rally further. Okay, so first question answer, too far, too fast, yes. Second part of your question is, is this a bear market rally that fails and goes to new lows? That's the premise that the majority of investors have right now. This is different than what we saw last year. Um, the reason last year that we were recommending selling on rallies is because of the underlying technical trends of the market were negative. Um, moving averages were declining. We had MACD sell signals in place on those rallies. Those didn't reverse in a lot of cases. This time around, we have a very strong MACD buy signal. The 50-day moving average is actually did cross. And, and you know, by the time I do the analysis this weekend, we'll find out. But the 50-day moving average has either crossed or is about to cross the 200-day moving average, which is that technical golden cross. Now, that does not mean absolute with guarantee that a bull market has started, but that is a very bullish sign historically. The markets have broken above, decisively broken above the downtrend that goes all the way back to January of 2022. Moving averages on the short term are turning up. Your 20-day moving average is turning up. Your 50-day moving average is turning up. The positive slope in those moving averages suggest that this is a bit of a different rally than what we've seen previously. The context of all this is, is that if we get a pullback, which uh, going back to question part one, yep. is overdone too far too fast? Yes, we get a pullback that does not violate that downtrend line from the 2022 highs, we hold support there. And then just below that is the 5,200 day moving average. So just call it 4,000 on the S&P. If the market can hold 4,000 on the S&P, work off some of this overbought condition, we're set up for another rally later on over the next couple of months. Now, that that's just what the technicals tell you right now. Obviously, there's a tremendous amount of things that we've got to deal with going forward. You know, the lag effect from all the monetary policy, um, yeah, economic data, as you mentioned earlier, but it's interesting. ISM services came in much stronger on Friday than was expected. And so we may have had the question I think we have to ask ourselves as investors, the economic data has been so bad for so long 
does it now start becoming less bad? Doesn't mean it's it's kind of like inflation. Just because inflation isn't going up as fast as it was, it is still going up. The rate of change is coming down. Same thing with economic data. Was the economic data so bad that now less bad is supportive for stock prices? And this is going to be the big challenge over the next few months. Soft landing, hard landing, that's going to be the big question in terms of the economy. Okay, so Lance, um, uh, you know, you have been saying over the past couple of weeks that you guys have been sort of nibbling in the market back in uh, with some of the capital that you had built up. Uh, for many of the reasons that you've sort of talked about here, you've been watching the technicals and seeing that things look like they could could make a break to the up or, or, or you know be supportive of the upside. You talked about last week seeing a, a true breakout, and, and that made you comfortable to put some more money at risk. Um, if indeed we let's say we do we do have, have a quick cooling off from the very recent exuberance, and that four thousand line provides support, right? Holds, and then the markets start going back up again. Will that be a material sign to you to put a substantially more capital to work then? So you recently interviewed Tom Lee, who was uber bullish on the markets. Um, if you get that kind of a test of the, you know, kind of the breakout levels, and then we rally back from a test of those breakout levels and then eclipse the highs from this week, that is about as good of a sign as you can get that we have a confirmed breakout. And yeah, we'll take our portfolio models to 100% equities at that point um, in terms of our allocation. So if it's a 60-40 allocation, it'll be 60% equities. If it's all equity, it'll be 100% equities. But yeah, that's that kind of a technical breakout is something you definitely do not want to ignore. Now, having said that, yes, we were nibbling into the markets ever since really the end of December. We were adding positions to our portfolio uh, at the beginning of January, we had uh, built in an index trading position. We took all, we took a big chunk, about eight percent of our portfolio, off. We to to a first of all capture those profits uh, that we garnered during January, but we were unwilling to hold those positions going into the Fed meeting because we had no idea what Jerome Powell was going to say, right. um, or and and really had no idea how the market would react to it. And it was and it was actually quite surprising, you know, based on what he said. Um, he completely wimped out on his inflation fight. So we can talk about the political angle of that, but I think he caved to, to the Democrats on, on this meeting. But, um, you know, now with this market very overbought, we're holding a little of extra cash, looking for this pullback, um, but we're going to be re-adding exposure, you know, right at the lows of the market back in October, early November, um, we were kind of, that was, a, that was the lowest level for the market so far uh, since the peak 2020. I wrote an article called Are Fang Stocks Dead? And made the case that because of passing of liquidity needs for professional money managers needing to hide money in tech stocks, particularly when growth gets going again, and the fact that disinflation is beneficial for growth companies that you'll want to, that Fang stocks were not dead and you'll want to own them. Uh, so we've been adding in to things like Microsoft, and and now with earnings behind us, we'll be adding into Google, Amazon, Apple, uh, those stocks as well. Because if we get as we get more disinflationary trends within the economy, those are the companies that are going to benefit uh, from that. We're taking money away from industrials, materials, energy, because those will lag in a disinflationary, slower economic environment. All right. Yeah. And uh, speaking of the, the growth stocks, we talked a bit about them last week because there had been some pretty 
pretty big performance in some of these players. Um, you had talked oh, about a month or so ago about uh, Meta. Yeah, which, you're bring you said, that up. <laughs> yeah, you said said a company you didn't you didn't, you didn't love personally for its services, but that had gotten just incredibly cheap. Yeah. Uh, and they had a massive upwards repricing yesterday, right? Yeah, yeah. I knew you were bring that one up. Yeah, we we just to to cl the, clarify the tape. You know, uh, one thing you always want to ask people when they trade stocks is, "Tell me about your losers." Meta was our loser, <laughs> so we actually bought Meta for a trading position uh, in our portfolio right before their last report. Of course, stock got clobbered the next day, so we got stopped out of that position. And since then, it's had a phenomenal run. Um, so, you know, kind of like your gold, uh, kind of like your gold miners, Adam. We by the time that we got past our thirty-day window for tax loss selling. The stock had already run too much to to buy it back, and and now it's just it's just off the rails. But um, you know, fundamentally, that company is extremely cheap uh, for a technology company, and in, and if we do get a decent correction in it at some point, we will be adding that one back to the portfolio. Okay, yeah, uh, I'm just looking at the chart here. My God, this thing was up like I don't know, twenty five percent, thirty percent in yeah. a day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's a and lot it's, of market cap getting created in a very short period of time. Exactly. You know, it fell out of the top 10. Uh, and again, we, you know, we go back and we talk about passive investing. Um, when somebody puts a dollar into a spider, like an S&P 500 index ETF, it flows primarily into those top 10 stocks. About 30, 35 cents of every dollar goes in those top 10 stocks. Meta fell out of that top 10 stocks. Now, this increase in market cap that is gaining may eventually get it back in that top 10. But as it moves up that ladder of market capitalization, it starts attracting more and more of these passive inflows, which right. is boosting the asset price. But as I said, you know, right now, and this goes for all the all basically all the tech stocks. Um, you know, Art, we talked about Kathy Wood here on the show before. Um, her portfolio got absolutely devastated last year, and it's interesting because some of the stocks she had, she's had her best one month return ever on record. The fund is up 28% in the month of January. Phenomenal return. You look at it on a chart, you can't even barely tell the fund is up, but it's, right. it's, and it's the same. If thing. you held it over the past year, it didn't help yeah. you all that much, but yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, but if you look at some of these companies in there, they've had, they're, they're up 100, 200% over the course of the last month. But again, you go look at some of these companies that she owns on a chart that goes, so go look at a three-year chart of some of these companies and you've got to really like stare to see the, the 250 <laughs> increase. Because, you know, what people forget is it sounds great that, you know, this stock's up 100%. Well, if I go from $100 to $1, right? I've lost 99% of my, my money. If I go from $1 to $2, I just had 100% return, but I'm still down 98% from the right, peak, right? right? So. That's what's going on. And we're seeing that in a lot of companies. And, and here's what's interesting about this whole rally. First of all, professional investors are not involved in it yet. And, and put, the, put the big caveat of yet behind what I just said. 28% of this rally has come from retail investors piling into the worst possible fundamental companies. Um, you know, Bitcoin is a great example of kind of risk-taking speculation and it's gone from 15,000 presumed dead that Bitcoin was done, and now it's up over 24. So it's had a huge return. So lots of speculative frenzy coming back very quickly into this market from retail investors. We had talked about last year is that 
what the reason the markets keep doing the opposite of what the Fed wants is everybody's afraid of missing the it's FOMO of missing the bottom. In 2021, it was FOMO missing the rally. Now it's the FOMO missing the bottom. So every time the Fed says something, they go, oh, that means he's going to pivot into the riskiest of assets, right? right? And so we've seen this huge rally. Professional managers have not chased this rally yet. They will because performance is going to be very important. And the, and the further that the professionals lag in terms of performance, the more pressure they have to start taking on positions to chase the rally. And this is why you're seeing this in particular in companies like Apple, Microsoft, Meta, Google, on, on up days like on Thursday, it was pretty much those stocks were green. Everything else was kind of, you know, maroon. <laughs> so, um, but that because those companies are very easy to hide into. That's that liquidity I was talking about for professionals. They can move into those companies very easily, move out of it very easily. So when this market moves and they have to start chasing performance, that's why it's going to drag money from lesser market cap companies into those big majors. And it's going to be that, that value back into growth mode over the next few months, if that is going to continue. Okay. All right. Well, look here for, for people that might be, you know, having watched these chan this channel for the past couple of months and at times seen us, you know, express a lot of concern for where the market was heading. Um, you know, after I'd interviewed Tom Lee, I was sort of presenting his thesis to you and you were, you know, identifying wow. a lot of potential weak points in it, right? Um, I, I just want to underscore something that you've you've said, you and Michael Leibowitz, your partner there at RA, have, have said since the beginning of this year, which is that 2023 is going to be the year of the audible, right? right? Where um, it, it, it is sort of a highly fluid and uncertain environment. And um, uh, you can make lots of arguments of, of where things could go. And so you just have to watch things really closely and be nimble here, right? And that's exactly what I believe you're, you're, you're doing here, right? You've seen some confirmation on the technical side. You're seeing some confirmation of capital flows and saying, hey, as, as a portfolio manager, whether I agree with what's happening or not, I need to try to understand it so that I can use it to make money for my clients, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. We we uh we use a lot of clothespins in our office right now. So if if people don't remember this, because this this is how old I am. Back in the back in the day before we had dryers, you had to hang your clothes up on clotheslines. You had these clothespins that you'd hang them with, and we just use them to basically pin our nose together when we buy something <laughs> that we really really don't want to be buying. You know, because because look, we have you know we have concerns about the economy, and and you know we can and and as I was talking about with Tom Lee's arguments, look, you look at what's happening, and and you know this data as well as I do. You know, the Fed's been hiking rates aggressively. The Fed meeting, you know, on Wednesday, he said, look, we're going to keep hiking rates. You know, what fueled the market was is that he said something very different this time that we didn't hear before is that I don't really give a crap about financial conditions in the short term. And that was all the markets needed to hear to go chase risk assets. But they do matter. Financial conditions matter and they matter a lot. And they're going to matter later this year. Uh, interest rates are going to matter later this year. All these rate hikes, and he's going to keep hiking rates, are going to matter. This employment number on Friday of 517,000 jobs, yes, it was pretty much all seasonal adjustments, and there's a bunch of crap that goes into that number, but that wasn't the important number. The important number was the hours worked, which ticked up by three, three tenths of a work week uh, to 34.7 hours. Now, why is that important? Well, if we're going into a recessionary slowdown, 
the first thing that companies are going to do is cut work hours. Before they start laying off people, before they start terminating employees, the first thing they'll do is just cut back work hours. They didn't. They increased the number of work hours in the last month. So that should be worrying the Fed because that if you're increasing work hours with a tight labor market, that means wages have to go up. So that should be worrying the Fed and be sparking them to actually have to maybe tight rates, tighten rates even more than they're talking about right now. So, you know, there's there's there is risk to this market and economy later this year. All I'm telling you is, is right now the bullish fundamentals are in place and and you can sit here on your hands and do nothing and be you know super defensive and miss out on a on a rally in the markets and maybe you'll be proven right in six months and the market will decline back to where we are and then what are you going to do right and that's right. the question is what are you going to do next you know yeah. with this market so question for you you said the bullish fundamentals are in place did you mean bullish fundamentals are in place or bullish technicals are in place technicals yes okay good yeah. good um, all right, because I do want to talk about the fundamentals in a little bit, but okay, you mentioned a couple of things I want to dig into. Um, Powell's uh, speech, obviously. Um, you know, the markets, to your point, Lance, they just heard him, you know, say he didn't really care so much about financial conditions, and that was all they needed to just, you know, shoot the moon, right? Um, but if you listen, and I went back and listened to, to his comments, the, the two things I really heard him say was, is, I'm not changing my plan. I'm not changing it until, you know, inflation's dead, right? Or, or the implied or something massive breaks and I've got to switch to fix that, right? But he basically just said like I'm not I'm not changing. So there was a lot of talk leading up to this one that this would be the last one, it would be the one and done, right? So those people are going to be disappointed. He talked about multiple rate hikes going forward, right? So not just even one more but multiple, right? Um and then he also said, uh, he talked a lot about uh, disinflation, but also that the impact of the 450 basis points of hikes they've already done, you know, he talked about the delay, right? Yeah. He basically said, like, we're just beginning to see the impact of that stuff, right? So the translation there was like, remember when I told you folks there was going to be pain? Like, you ain't seen nothing yet, folks, right? So part of me is almost sort of wondering, like, you know, I was surprised. I thought he was going to come out and do a Jackson Hole and just take a big monkey hammer to market enthusiasm and really try to talk everybody down. I wonder if he's just like, yeah, screw it, market, whatever. You do whatever you want, right? Because he knows what's coming, right? You know, I put out a tweet that basically was like, it's the equivalent of like, markets, you can party all you want to. I know the cops have already been called and they're on their way, right? Yeah, you know, but it's interesting because, you know, Jerome Powell has taken a lot of grief from people like Senator Elizabeth Warren and uh, uh, even uh, Secretary Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen um, about this idea of causing pain in the economy. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting because, you know, he really, when he was asked the question about financial conditions, he really fumbled the ball, you know, like stuttered, stumbled and kind of fell around on the answer. Hey, sorry to interrupt, but I want in your answer if you if you can address this. He said a couple of times that financial conditions had tightened, and yeah. that's contrary to the data that I've seen. That is correct. Uh, Did he misspeak, or is he looking at a different data set? <laughs> um, how do you call somebody a liar without actually calling them a liar? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm I'm not saying he's lying. Uh, you know, he's I think you know he's talking about yes, financial conditions have tightened because interest rates are higher. Um, credit card debt, uh, credit card interest rates are at the highest level since the 1970s, right? So when you take a look at financial conditions in that regard, yes, they are tighter. 
Um, when you take a look but at you and I are talking about like the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index or Goldman Sachs, right? right. These indices that are put together that are looser today than right. when the Fed started hiking back in, in March of last year, right? right? And, and those include, but see, those financial conditions include the stock market, include the dollar, include interest rates. Uh, interest rates have eased on the ten-year Treasury, and you know we talked about you know TLT and and the ten-year Treasury note back in October, November said that's probably the peak in interest rates. Since then, those rates have come lower. Um, you know, if we look at the dollar, the dollar has weakened markedly. That is an easing of financial conditions because that makes things cheaper and exports make up forty percent of corporate revenues. So those financial conditions, when measured in that manner, have definitely eased. Um, you know. The problem for Jerome Powell, and, and this showed up in the services index today, is let's go back to what he has said previously. He needs to he needs to technically cause some pain in the markets. Why? Because he needs consumer confidence to come down so people will quit spending money, buying houses, buying cars, those type of things. What happened in the last month? Auto sales ticked up, home buying ticked up, and and services went from 49, a contractionary measure of the economy, to 55 in a month. It is a huge explosion in ISM services, and that is not what you want if you're trying to slow down the economy to get less inflation. Right. And jobs exploded, which doesn't help the wage inflation situation right. in theory, right? Yeah, hours worked, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, so, okay. So I'm glad we, we dug into that because you just explained it to me. And, and you know, basically, we're kind of looking at different data. Now, I got to say, if Powell says conditions are tightened because interest rates are higher, well, duh, you raised interest rates, of course, right? But I'm sure looking at these indices we're talking about, that is not what Powell wants to see, no. right? Yeah. Um, all right. So, um, so, okay, so here we go to jobs, right? Like, you know, we've talked about how with the markets in rally mode, uh, inflation still high, and jobs being incredibly good on paper, right? Um, that gives Powell all the leeway in the world to keep hiking and tightening, right? Yeah. It yeah. doesn't have to worry at all. Hey, Elizabeth Warren, what are you talking about, right? You know. <laughs> so, um, so look, it, they expected an increase of about two hundred thousand jobs. They got an increase of over five hundred thousand, right? Um, this was largely due to, as you said, just massive upwards revisions. Um, in both the establishment and household survey data. Remember how there was that big gap between the two, like two and a half million jobs? Yeah. Um, I haven't gotten an exact number, but what I've heard is, is that's pretty much gone, closed or close to closed now, right? And they closed it basically just by going back and reevaluating upwards all the data so that, um, you know, that, that gap closed. So, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion that this is all just goal seeking in an Excel file somewhere, right? That this isn't really mapping at all to the reality on the ground. And who knows? Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But one thing that that's clear from these reports is that all of this increase is coming from um, part-time work. So if you look at since March of last year, so the past like 11 months of of the all the jobs gained, um, they were all part-time work. Um, Full-time jobs actually lost 10,000 uh, positions, right? So, you know, it's a great question of like, okay, so even if these the number of jobs is up, if it's because it's due to all part-time work, is that actually a sign of a deteriorating workforce, right? Where everybody else has to get a second job just to be able to make ends meet, right? So, um, uh, 
everybody's cheering the fact that unemployment is technically down to 3.4%, which is, you know, one of the lowest uh, levels it's been. It's an extreme low. Um, but, you know, should we just be cheering about that? Or maybe if we dig a little deeper, we say, you know what, this is maybe actually telling us something very different than what the headline number says. Well, look, one of the most, you know, argued, debated, challenged, you know, data series is employment um, because of all the, the the funky math that goes into it, right? We got these, you know, seasonal adjustments, birth death adjustments, right. a thousand different adjustments. And I, I mean, I'll be honest, like, I just don't believe it. I just ignore <laughs> it because I just don't find it believable. But well, and, and look, there's a lot of problems with it. Again, you, you, just some logic. When you look at the number of people, okay, just, you know, real simple math here, right? We have about 130 million people employed according to uh, the, the employment payroll uh, data. And that's supposedly, we only have 3.4% unemployment. That means that 97% of the economy is employed, right? Gainfully employed. But when you look at the economy, which is 330 million people in total, you've only got one third of them working. And you know, so where's everybody else? I guess there's some students, there's some colleges, there's kids that, that are right. with the work. But there's yeah, all- We talk about that. They're in the out of the workforce, which are people yeah. that you and I think should be considered in the employment calculation but aren't yep so it's yeah. artificially rosy to begin with yep exactly so so th so there's that's why it's always you know challenging and, and then when you kind of look at the the economic data if all these and here's here's a here's a a, a real question which is if everybody's work if we truly have 97 percent employment okay that means everybody's working then we should have six, seven, eight percent economic growth, because if you're working, you're getting paid a paycheck and you're spending that money in the economy. And that leads to more demand on businesses. So they have to produce more, which means they have to hire more people, which means more people get paid, which generates more. But we don't have that kind of growth outside of stimulus check driven a frenzy frenzy. But, you know, since 2000, we've been running an average of about two percent economic growth, which prior to 2000, mind you, was if you had 2% growth in the economy, that was considered pre-recessionary. Right, that was anemic at best. At best. And you need more than 2% growth just to absorb new labor entrants into the markets every year. So at 2%, you're just barely breaking even. And and yet now we're cha we're championing that as like, man, if we have 2% growth, we're, we're kicking ass. But that doesn't jive with 100% of the workforce being employed because you would, by nature have much stronger uh, economic activity. So Lance, you have really stepped in it because um, this is exactly <laughs> where I was going. Get ready, strap in here because I've got, I've got some data I want to walk into because this is my question for you around this, which is does these job numbers map to the reality of the following? And let's start with economic growth. So GDP now for Q1 is currently predicting 0.7% growth. Yep. Right. And that's down from the what 2.9 for Q4, which we know was kind of an artificially high number anyways, because it was skewed by like big airplane orders and stuff like that. And then it was inventories the quarter before that. So 0.7% annualized real GDP growth. That's not a that's not a six percent growth economy, right? Right. Um, all right. So then we look at inflation, right? So yes, it's still high, but if we look at the trajectories of both the CPI and the core PCE, which is the, the Fed's preferred inflation measure, 
they are both beginning to come down. The gravity of the demand destruction efforts that the Fed is undertaking are beginning to work here, right? So right. that is showing that, okay, you know, demand is beginning to come down, right? That's, again, not the sign of a, of a you know, red-hot economy. Um, okay, now let's go over to uh, the ISM manufacturing number. Now, you talked about services. You're right, services was a bit of a surprise. But again, it had been in contraction, so it just... First, first month out of contraction here. We'll see if it sticks. But ISM manufacturing PMI is just falling off a cliff, right? It's been declining. There's no no, no bounce yet in this, this chart, right? Um, so that is still very much an economy in contraction. Um, real wages have been negative for the past 21 months straight, right? Um, retail sales uh, are in decline. Um, they've been uh, on a downward trajectory pretty much for the past year, but the past couple of months, they've actually been negative uh, in terms of their growth. Uh, this household savings rate is down at 60 plus year lows right now. Okay. Um, credit card debt, as we've talked about, is at record highs. Um, defaults uh, are now beginning to really spike. Um, they're now seen as surging to 13 year highs here in 2023. That's the prediction. Um, and as we've talked about, some of our, our best uh, recession indicators, both the inverted yield curves, the many, many inverted yield curves that we see now, um, and the conference board's uh, top 10 leading economic indicators, which to date have a 100% correlation with predicting recessions, uh, is predicting recession here. Yeah. So I, I just go through that parade of these you know, important data points here just to say, as you were like, I would not expect to see data like this if we were near 100% empl employment, right? Right, right. No, exactly right. And, and, and by the way, that's the interesting question here is that, you know, everybody's sitting going, okay, soft landing, no recession. It It's certainly possible. You know, I am not going to sit here and go, it's absolutely not possible. But when you take a look at the six-month rate of change of the LEIs, which um, has 100% accuracy in predicting recessions, yield inverted yield curves, 100% you know, accuracy in predicting recessions. I just posted an article on Friday on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com talking about the National Federation of Independent Business survey. In 2019, I wrote that same article discussing those indicators saying, hey, a recession's coming. Nobody believed it at the time and then we had a recession in March of 2020. So, you know, all these things that historically, time after time after time predict a recession, are all screaming we're going to have a recession, yet we're getting these economic data points that say there is no recession coming. There is no recession in sight. And, you know, you, you got me. Either things are about to just fall off the cliff or things are going to start improving. And I just don't know which one it's going to be. Yeah. And, and you know, it's interesting about that. Go back to your sort of prediction of, of the recession in 2020. Um you know, there are people that will hear that and say, Lance, there's no way you could have predicted the COVID pandemic and the shutting down of the global economy. And, and I know that's not what you're saying. What you're saying is, is you, you saw the conditions were being set for a recession based upon all the indicators. You didn't know exactly when it was going to happen or what was going to cause it. You were just saying, we're seeing all the precursors here, right? right? So, you know, it's hard to make the bullish case, as I've said the past couple of weeks here, besides China, I can't think of any fundamental reason why we should see a surge or resurgence of, of growth that could justify, you know, a real bullish market uh, upturn. Um, but who knows, just like you couldn't predict it was going to be a pandemic, 
there might be something else out there that had maybe it's truce between Russia and Ukraine. I don't know. It could be could be anything, right? And somebody yeah. announces cold fusion tomorrow. Who knows, right? <laughs> but no, but there no, could no. be something. I don't think those things are going to happen, but they could, and we have to be open to the fact. Yeah, and, and that's and that's the important thing is is, is and and you nailed it um, in terms of that. You know, everybody goes immediately. Everybody goes. Well, if it hadn't been for the pandemic, you know, we wouldn't have a recession. No, we would have had a recession. It's just what would actually trigger the recession. And it could have been something else that would have triggered the recession had we not shut down the economy. Maybe let's look at it differently. The economy was already primed for a recession. We already had the Fed bailing out hedge funds because it was a problem in late 2019. Repo windows were going crazy. Interest rates are already back to zero by the Fed. So the Fed knew there was a problem with liquidity. So there was everything was already set up. So let's say we had the pandemic, but in infinite hindsight, wisdom, nobody shut down the economy, right? Well, the economy would have gone into a recession anyway, because people couldn't go to work because they were sick. So, you know, that was all set up there for that. And this is always the case. 2008, you know, we were heading into a recession, but nobody knew that Lehman was going to file for bankruptcy, right? It's the, it's what these are, these events are what catalyze the recession. And so we have all the relevant ingredients now for a recession. We have all the precursors for a recession. All we're missing is, and, and when we get there, because it's always this, this way, right? In, in, in 2000, it was Enron. Nobody knew Enron was going to go belly up. Um, but when we get there, some of it will happen. And it's nothing that we're talking about right now. It'll be some off-the-wall, left-field event that comes along and everybody will say, well, you didn't know that was going to happen. And now we have a recession and the leg lowered the market. It, it's it, All it takes is the we've got all the kindling. All we need is a match. We just don't know what the match is going to be. Got it. Yeah. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give one of my analogies here. It's like the drunker somebody gets, you're like, that guy's going to fall over. Right. Yeah. And and if, if he's walking down the street, yeah, he could fall over because someone bumps into him. He could fall over because he trips on a brick that was on the sidewalk. You know, in the case of the pandemic, like that guy, a piano fell on the guy, right? Like, I mean, sometimes it's something huge. Sometimes it could be something, you know, pedestrian and normal, right? Um, but the odds of of the fact that he's going to fall over, we can know when they're much higher than normal based upon all the indicators you're talking about. Right. Um, all right. Look, um, I want to I want to pull up the 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 rant uh, today uh, to now because it. Um, it's going to make a point that, that we're trying to make here and that you make a lot here, Lance, which is that you, you, we can't be blindly wedded to a particular outcome, right? Um, no matter how how much we think it should happen or how much we desperately want it to happen, right? Um, we have to really be, uh, you know, alert. And we talk about this as being, you know, the era of active investing versus the easy era of passive investing that we've been able to, we were able to enjoy for the past decade. So I want you to go on this little journey with me, okay? Little story. Um, I, I first heard this story on Malcolm Gladwell's podcast a couple of years ago, and it, it really stuck with me. Um, I actually wrote a, an article for it a few years back called Making the Wrong Choices for the Wrong Reasons. So um, Lance, I'm sure you know Wilt Chamberlain, right? The great NBA star, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, Wilt's one of the, you know, most famous, most deserving NBA all-stars, Um he, uh, you know, very famous for the game in which he scored 100 points, right? Remember that? I mean, he was just such a force. One guy scored 100 points. <laughs> it was a ridiculous blowout game. One of the best performances in sports history. And one thing that's really interesting about that was um, 28 of those points were free throws, right? 
And uh, he made that night, he made 88% of his free throws, he made 28 of 32, um, which was amazing for him because he was actually historically a terrible free throw shooter. Right. He had one of the worst records in the league. Um, his career average over the course of his career was 50%, even though that night he shot 88%. So um, why did he have such a great night from a, a free throw standpoint? Well, it's because he had actually been getting coaching that year from the league, the NBA uh, league's top shooter for free throws. This was a guy from the Golden State Warriors named Rick Barry. Rick Barry is the best free throw shooter of all time. Over his 15-year career, um, he had a 90% average on free throws. His, his best year was uh, 95% from the, the free throw line. Um, and the reason why Rick Barry was so great at free throws was because he did granny shots. He was the only guy in the league at the time who did a granny shot, right? And yet he was the league's best scorer, right? So, you know, what happened with Chamberlain is- Everybody made fun of him, by the way, too. Pardon me? Everybody made fun of it, too. They, they did, and that's part of the story. So um, so uh, what happened to Chamberlain is he was a total force in, in a game, but he was a liability right at the end because if it was a close game, the other team would foul him so that he would go to the foul line. They knew pretty much he was going to miss and they'd get a chance to get the ball back, right? So uh, that year, Chamberlain was like, I really got to work on my free throws. And Rick Barry taught him and he started, Wilt Chamberlain started doing granny shots and started making them, right? So anyways, Wilt Chamberlain goes, has the best night of his career, scores 100 points, you know, um, almost half of them, uh, almost a third of them, sorry, being free throws, you know, sinking almost all of his free throws. And then Lance, he stops doing the granny shot. He stops doing the granny shot uh, the next year. And his um, uh, he went from, from that year when he won the 100-point game, he had a career high of making uh, 61% of his, his free, free, throw, uh, free throws, uh, plummeting to a low of just 38%, right? Yep. And look, I mean, this is a sport where you get compensated on how well you score, right? I mean, there's like millions of dollars on the line here. And but, it's but it's embarrassing to do a granny shot on the free throw line. That is exactly it. And <laughs> so here's his quote. So he said, I felt silly, like a sissy shooting underhanded. I know I was wrong. <laughs> I know some of the best foul shooters in history shot that way. Even now, the best one in the NBA, Rick Barry, shoots underhanded. I just couldn't do it. So this is what I talk about, about making the wrong decisions for the wrong reasons right? Yeah. His team is depending upon him. His personal compensation is depending upon him. He's got data that says, when I shot this way, I set the all-time scoring record in the game. And yet he still couldn't bring himself to do it. And he reverted and it costs, you know, it cost him, right? So, you know, I, I make this connection to investors, right? Where like, um, you know, sometimes we just want it to be easy, right? And it was really easy, for the past, you know, since 2010 to the end of 2021, right? And now all of a sudden, we're really hoping it's going to be easy again. Oh, can we just go back to, I can just be long everything and make a lot of money and I don't have to think about it, right? Um, or, you know, just because we just we just want it so badly, right? Like I, it, whether you're on the bullish side or the bearish side, right? Oh, I hate this market. I got to be positioned bearish all the time. And you're doing a great job of saying, you got to keep your eyes open because the market can move on you, yeah. whether you think it should or not, right? And obviously, same thing on the bull side too, right? So um, I think that this is one of the things that, um, you know, it impacts a guy like Will Chamberlain, but I think it just impacts the regular investor too. It's like, I get a thesis 
And I feel like 100% of my, my money has to be invested according to that thesis and that that thesis playing out in the near future, right? You're nodding vigorously as I'm saying this, because I know you know you've seen a lot of people lose a lot of money or miss out on a lot of gains because they thought like Will Chamberlain did and just said, you know what, like uh, maybe it's technically more intelligent to do something else, but this just feels so right to me, right? No, I know. Look, it's and, and here, you know, this is the the big challenge. You know, Mike and I, you know, personality-wise, we tend to lean bearish just because we've been around this market for 30 years. We've seen all this stuff before. We understand fundamentals, we understand valuations, we understand all that. And so when you understand those things, it's hard not to psychologically go, this market can't just keep going up, it's got to go lower. But um the problem with that is is that you wind up you know, missing out on a lot of activity. And that's why, you know, I was saying earlier, we've got, you know, clothespins all over our office right now just to hold our nose shut because you got to buy stuff when you don't agree with it, but it's it's moving and it's, and it's moving higher and things are improving. Technicals are improving. Price action is improving. Breadth is improving. And I mean, we can go through a very long list of indicators right now that are all suggestive that, as I said earlier, joking, when we cancel everything else in society, the, the bear market's now being canceled and you know we're back into bull mode. Um, what bothers me about that is that Jim Cramer also says we're back in bull mode by the dips. <laughs> so, yeah, and you've been telling uh, me you're waiting for him to start doing that to then go bearish again. So. I know. Uh, this time, you know, you may be right for a little while. Um, but look, you know, as I, as I said, you know, we have to understand where we are. And this is, you know, I, I get lots of emails every day from people complaining. And, and since I've been more bearish over the last couple of months, I'm actually getting hate mail now. Um, so, <laughs> just, you know, because like, I can't believe you're an idiot if you think this market is going to go up from here and it just kind of keeps ticking higher. Right. And, yeah. and I get it. Right. It's painful when you're positioned for a negative market and you're in all the positions that should benefit from a negative market and it's going against you and and you're going man if i would just i was if i was positioned that way i'd be making money right now you know that's that's the hard part of all this and and it is trying to capture those gains but still also manage risk because the most important thing for us is not losing a lot of money um, in the markets, particularly since it's not our money, it's our clients' money that it becomes much more dear to us. But you know, we've got to understand the market that we're in. We've got to participate in the market that we're in. And then when it changes, we have to be willing and able to change. And we're going to, have to do that fairly quickly. Yeah, and and so all that's totally true. And also, given this market we're in, which you know, I, I've said this many times, but the era we're in, I think, is a really treacherous one for investors. Because there are so many cross currents, there's so many factors in play, and uh, you know, a lot of it at times, at any given time, maybe doesn't make a ton of sense, right? So what you got to do is you got to really work on doing your homework, on understanding the fundamentals, and watching the technicals. Look where they align. Look where they diverge. Come up with a principal thesis, but design a portfolio plan that that gives you hedges in place in case your principal thesis is wrong, and then be nimble enough to adjust your thesis to match the unfolding reality on the ground, right? And, and again, and I'll do this again at the end of this video. That's why I always talk about working with a professional advisor for most people, because for most people doing that can be really hard, especially when you have a real life. But but this era calls for that much more so than say the past 10 years did. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, will we get back into another era where it's just buy and hold and index? 
you know, maybe. Um, that'll be when the Fed's cutting rates and, and doing QE again, but we're not there yet. So between now and there, it's going to be, you know, a lot more volatility, I suspect, and, you know, a lot more challenging in terms of positioning. But, you know, this is, you know, when, you know, when we're looking at, you know, the markets or the environment that we're in and, and you know, it's, it's, we also have to understand that there are going to be factors that are different going forward. And, you know, last year, so in November of 21, you and I were talking and we said, hey, time to buy energy stocks. Nobody wants, everybody hates energy stocks. They're, they're in the depths of, of, of abyss. And remember, that was the year that oil prices had gone negative, right, on futures. And yep. so everybody was just convinced that energy stocks were over. We said, hey, it's time to buy energy stocks. They're going to be the best performer in the next year. Not only were they the best performer by a little bit, they were the best performer by a lot. Now, everybody is looking back at last year going, oh, I've got to be long these stocks because they're what was performing and they're going to keep performing. And here's all my reasons why. Well, the problem is, is those are an inflation trade and we're now moving into disinflation, economic slowdown uh, or recession. And, and so we have to start thinking about, OK, who gets hurt? in a slowing or recessionary environment versus what does well in an economic growth environment, which is small cap, mid cap, emerging markets international. So if I'm moving into a slowing uh, disinflationary environment, we have to start thinking about who performs better. And those are companies that can grow earnings in a slower growth, slower demand environment. And so that's why you got to start shifting your thinking now, looking for Who's going to perform in that type of environment? Because that's, you know, we're talking about inflation dropping. The Fed expects to be at 2% this year. You're talking about a recession. That means slower earnings. Um, so who's going to perform better in that environment? And that's where you're going to start looking to position now, which is going to be drastically different than when you were positioned last year. Yeah, interesting. All right. Well, fantastic point. Um, I am going to ask you in a bit about your trades so that people can look through your eyes to see at some of the companies that you're looking at right now. But let me ask a question. Um, so Yes, we always have to be looking at the current environment and saying, okay, and where it's headed and saying, okay, you know, which are the companies that best fit where things are going. Um, but to your point about the energy stocks, like I, I do think that there is a general uh, danger of the siren song of last year's outperformers, no matter what the industry, no matter what the macro environment, right? Where people have a, a, a proclivity to look and say, oh, these things did really well, so I want to be in those. And um, the, the, there's just a mathematical rule of, of reversion to the mean, right? Yeah. That that every company, every sector has sort of its average trading range, right? And when it gets out of that trading range, well, eventually reversion to the mean will pull it back into its trading range. And so there's this danger if you take this approach of always sort of chasing what's been hot, is you increase your probability of riding that reversion and, and you're putting math against you, right? But you're nodding as I'm saying all this. Yeah, I know that's exactly the, the right point. And in fact, you know, uh, there's a company called Callan that every year produces a, what we call a periodic table of return. So if you kind of think about high school when you had the, the table of periodic elements and they were all- Chemistry class, yeah. Exactly, right. Um, they kind of did the same thing with uh, the major markets. And what you'll notice, and, and it's very important to take a look at this because this goes right to one of the psychological biases that impact us negatively as investors. It's called hindsight bias or recency bias. 
Um, and, and that is to look at what worked and say, okay, that's what worked last year. It's going to work again this year. But what you'll notice is when you look at those periodic table returns, whatever's at the top of returns for one year, it may be there for a year. It might be there for two years. But generally, to your point, Adam, it's the math that comes into play. And what you'll find is that most of the time, if it's emerging markets at the top of the market one year, it's at the bottom of returns the next year. And it's not very much in the middle. It's either the top or the bottom. Uh, the S&P pretty much ranges in the middle, sometimes at the top, sometimes at the bottom, sometimes it's in the middle. But, you know, nothing stays at the top consecutively year after year after year after year. Something always displaces it. And usually, by and large, the majority of the time, whatever displaces what was at the top of the ladder the previous year was what was most hated the year before. And so this year, as we move into this year, you know, um, nobody liked tech stocks and nobody liked bonds last year. That was, those were the two big losers. And who's been the winner this year so far? Tech. So, you know, that's just kind of that, that psychological bias working against us right now. It's like, man, I'm, I'm in all the wrong sectors because I'm still what was working last year. Well, that was last year. Let's talk about this year. All right. All right. Okay. Look, well, um, before we get to your trades, um, I want to just go back to some of the data we we visit every time on this channel. And it is still a little bit of a continuation of my parade of macro data that I was showing <laughs> earlier that was pretty bearish. Um, just as I've told everybody, we got to be open to both sides of the story. I'm, I'm going to put up some data here that continues to be a little bit on the bearish side. Um, so just on housing, um, I just wanted to note uh, two things. Um, one, um, KPMG, um, you know, big consulting firm, um, it's warning of a 20% U.S. housing correction in 2023. That's on top of whatever we saw happen last year, right? So, you know, there, there's there's more and more respected economists coming to the table, changing their tune about housing and saying, yeah, actually, you know what, it's, it's this correction's underway and it's still got some legs to go, right? Um, now, I, I want to contrast that with where homebuyer stocks are right now, Lance. Oh, see, right. I was, I was, I was going to ask you about that because all the economists are getting super bearish. But man, if you look at home builder stocks, they are on fire. Fire. So I want to let you talk about that. But let me just mention, they're on fire right now with economists predicting an additional 20% cra uh, correction. Uh, transactions crashing. That's not a prediction. That's a reality, right? They have 40 plus percent in certain markets. Uh, massive cancellations, right? We talked about the 68% cancellations for KB Homes in Q4 of last year. Um, price corrections mounting by the day, practically, uh, in markets. Um, you know, we talked about the 30% the price correction in the Bay Area from the in the median price from, from May of this past year to, to now. Um, and monthly supply of new homes surging higher. Um, every time we've seen uh, new home sales surge this higher, this high, um, it's generally been followed by a recession, right? So we have all of those things that a rational person would look at and say, this is not good for housing. And yet these guys, these builders are trading at all time or yeah, pretty much at all time highs, many of them. Yeah. No, the, the, and look, you know, this is the thing about, you know, markets. And, and this is the most important thing to remember about markets, which is markets predict where things are going to be six months from now. Um, markets tend to bottom six months before earnings bottom. Now, earnings have had a pretty big decline so far. They probably got a little bit more to decline this year, but our markets are already starting to price in 
the weakness in earnings. Are housing stocks already pricing in a a bottoming of the housing market? And again, you know, when all and what bothers me is always the case, which is from that contrarian point of view, when all the economists, which are always wrong, start saying, yeah, 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 we got another twenty percent to go on the, on the housing market. Uh, I need to uh, leave this interview earlier because I need to go buy a house because <laughs> probably. Um, you know, probably the market's going to bottom sooner than that. It's hard to believe that, you know, when you take a look at the discrepancy between home equity prices, right, and incomes, that gap is so huge. It's like, how on earth does that not correct a substantial degree? And, you know, this is the argument that we're having, right? There, there's so much of this economic data that is like, this has got to reverse because it just cannot be sustained at these levels. But what if it does for some reason? What if what if things don't correct as much as we think they should? You know, these are the challenges that we have as investors to try to navigate this because again, it's really easy. It is really easy to make a super bearish case and to have all your assets in precious metals and real estate and ammo and guns and beanie weenies, right? That's that's a really easy argument to make. But what if something else happens, right? And all of a sudden those assets don't perform and everything else does. How do you navigate that? How do you make that switch? That's the hard part of all this is, is trying to figure out this disconnect we've got going on right now because we've never seen it like this before where you had such a disconnect from the economic realities and what the market's doing right now. Got it. All right. And, and again, that's underscoring my whole point about what a treacherous time is. Yeah. it is for investors, both individual and professional. I mean, it's, it's yeah. hearing a guy like you, who's been managing money for decades, you know, saying super hard right now. Right. Now I've never, uh, this, this is, these last two years have been the most difficult markets I've ever been in. Wow. Okay. I'm actually glad we finally got a comment like that out. I mean, it, it really does speak to what, what, you know, folks have been yeah. watching saying, I feel kind of overwhelmed trying to follow what's going on. Well, there's a reason for that folks. Yeah. Yeah, you know, you know dot com crisis was easy, right? I mean, that that was an easy market to short. I mean, it, it it technically laid out beautifully. Every rally was was a perfect, you know, short entry point. It, it was an easy trend to follow. All the all the metrics and economics matched up nicely. Financial crisis, it, it was fast and sharp and ugly, but that was a real. We were out of the market in June of two thousand and eight, um, and that was a super easy market to trade. You had a perfect head and shoulders top. You broke. Retested the neckline, failed, and then all hell broke loose. And it, and it worked out exactly the way it should have technically. Last year, that bear market was not the way that bear market should have worked. Interesting. And I'm just curious, and then we'll move on. But but when you reflect back on what really was unique about it or unexpected about it, what were some of the top factors? Uh, last year? Yeah. In last year's market. Well, again, you take a look at what was going on in terms of just you know the the economic data, the the tightening of monetary policy, um, you know, the over expectation of earnings growth, which is is now mean reverting. You you start factoring in that with high valuations, rising interest rates, the highest inflation rate since the 1980s. You know that market should have been down. 40, 50% last year. Yeah. And it, there's there's no reason it shouldn't have been down that much with the exception of passive investing and a shitload of corporate buybacks, which were helping support asset prices. But that is just, you know, that's that phenomenon that just occurred last year. 
And that's what was so frustrating. You know, we tried to short the markets a couple of times last year, and it just wasn't that beneficial because hard, yeah. the declines it, was the declines were shallow and then they got rallied back out of. So it was it was it was just very tough. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, we we I've talked with you about the interviews I've done with Bill Fleckenstein, who's you know, famous short seller who basically took like a decade hiatus from it because he said this giant mindless robot of passive capital flows has just made it really hard, right? Yeah. Um Okay. Um, super fascinating. Thanks for thanks for sharing that. Oh, the other thing I, 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 I'd add to that list, and I'm curious if you would agree, is we didn't break the mindset uh, of, of the investor uh, during last year, right? There, there wasn't a capitulation. There was always a sense of, you know what, this is going to come back. You know, this sense of kind of buying the dip. There, there, was, there was beginning to be angst that that was not working anymore, but it never broke, right? right. And, and and we're totally back to full FOMO now. Yeah. Yeah. You never really had that, you know, full on capitulation, um, which is surprising. When the markets were down 20% for the year, I would have expected that was really kind of that point to where you should have seen a lot of liquidation, but you didn't. Um, you know, margin debt, we, we, you know, I had spoken about margin debt, you know, in 2021 ish. And, you know, margin debt was at record highs, highest level of margin debt ever. And that margin debt has come down a lot. And that deleveraging should have drove asset prices a whole lot lower, but it didn't. There was always enough buying coming in to offset that deleveraging process all the way down. And, and I don't want, I'm not a big into conspiracy theories or anything like that, but it certainly seemed like there was always just enough buying to offset the selling, yeah, keep it to keep the floor from just falling out from underneath yeah. the market. Yeah. Oh, and, and who knows? Um, you know, we used to hear a lot about the plunge protection team and all that stuff. Um, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there were some people somewhere, either on the government or the corporate side, that were pulling levers to try to keep things stable. But but who yeah. knows? We're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, all right. Oh, and then, you know, you you told me a lot last year that you had a lot of people that, you know, as the markets kept going down, kept asking you, is this the bottom? Like, I've got cash I want to put in. Is this the time to put money in? Um, which you said, that's not the sign of a bottom, right? Sign of a bottom is when nobody wants to put their cash in. And I, I, I didn't hear you tell me much that you had many people who were like, ah, that's it, I'm out. I hit my personal frustration level. Just sell everything. I don't want to touch this stuff again. Um, is that correct? Yeah. Well, we were only down like 7% last year. So, you know, we were never down enough to where people are just like, ah, I'm done. You know, we had a, we had a massive inflow of clients last year from other places that were down 30, 40. You know, we had talked about, uh, I forgot one of our recent interviews a, a couple of months ago, that the average retail investor was down like 35% last year right, right. versus the market. We saw a lot of those accounts last year come in. We saw a lot of clients come in that were down 30, 35%, either because of their own personal investing or because of- Or, or a bad advisor. Right? Um, so yeah, we did see a lot of that. And, and but you know, we didn't personally see a lot of people just go, I'm out. Right. Well, and even those people, they weren't, they weren't going out. They were just ditching their advisor and coming to you. They were still willing to be in the game. Right. So again, it just goes to the fact that that, that psychological break never really seemed to happen. That's right. Um, all right. Well, look, let's 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 go from housing for a second, which you know, you're you're saying, hey, the home buyers might be pricing, you know, a better days in six months. And, you know, maybe they know something we don't, right? Yeah. Um 
but uh, I want to talk about layoffs for a minute because <laughs> houses are supposedly priced on what regional incomes can support, right? right? So layoffs really picked up steam in January, as this chart I'm showing shows. Um, and people like to say, ah, it's just tech, right? You know, like it's not a big deal. It's just tech and tech's not that big a part of the national workforce and all that stuff. Well, yes, it's starting in tech, but um, it has definitely been um, spreading out into other uh, categories, verticals. Um, I mean, just name just a couple. So in finance, uh, Fidelity, Wells Fargo, in healthcare, Athena Health and MindStrong, in autos, uh, in autos, Rivian, they've all announced substantial layoffs in the past 24 hours, right? That's literally just the past day, right? Um, so uh, it, it's not just a, you know, a minor part of the economy it's it's a contagion that is is spreading um and that, ironic, you know, that ironically as they're announcing these layoffs we're hiring 500,000 people so you have that well you're okay so you're getting to my um I'll get there now um so uh, I put up a tweet this morning basically that said effectively like hey you know good news we're in this new alternate reality where the more people we lay off the lower the unemployment rate goes so like, hey, you know, if companies really get serious about chopping heads, we could get to 100% employment, right? Yeah, it's a function of math. Yeah, it is just so weird. Right now, it is it is a direct relationship, right? You know, the, the more people we lay off, the lower the unemployment rate goes. Yeah, you know, and, and you know, there there is a valid argument for the tech layoffs, right? Because if you take a look at how many people Amazon, Microsoft, uh, Apple, Google hired in Oh, we've talked about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They're, they're laying off a fraction of, of that massive headcount. But to your point, you know, they, they are starting to spread out to companies who didn't do that. 3M, you know, announced a bunch of layoffs recently. We're seeing it spread out to other manufacturing industrial companies, airlines. You know, it's starting to, to kind of creep through the system. But it just, you know, it, it's interesting that, and again, this is that conundrum of the employment data. Every month we're cranking out 300,000, 400,000, 250,000 jobs or whatever it is. And I'm, you're going like, why are we, if we're hiring this many people, why are we laying off people? That makes no sense. Right. Which again, I told you, I don't even believe that those, those jobs reports anymore um, because yeah. of all the data we've been talking about here. And the other point I was going to make on this topic is, is like, yeah. And this is anecdotal, but like I'm now beginning to see it manifest. Like I now know people in my community or who I've worked with who have lost their jobs, right? right. Um, and it's not a like, a, oh, and then I got, you know, a recruiter called me the next day and I got snapped up because other companies are dying to hire, right? I mean, it's 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 becoming a reality that is beginning to be visible, at least in my world, but I'm hearing the same from other people as well. Okay. So um, again, it's sort of that, you know, who are you going to believe, um, you know, the jobs report or our own lion eyes, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. I'm, I'm increasingly looking, looking, preferring what my eyes are telling me, but, but we'll see. But where I'm going with this is, is look, um, uh, you know, as you said, you know, look, uh, inflation's coming down and whatnot, right? And at some point, Powell's going to stop hiking, right? But like, if he just hangs out there at 5% and inflation is around 5%, you know, like those are both horrible numbers for corporate <laughs> America, right? Um, and so it's hard not to see the earnings compression that we think. And we've been seeing some bad forward guidance being offered by a number of companies coming out now. So it is it's it is more difficult, I think, than, it, than it's not to, um, uh, you know, expect that we're not going to see 
more layoffs as the year goes on, right? And yeah. that should have depressive effects on consumer spending. That should have depressive effects on housing, all that type of stuff. Will it? I don't know. You and I are going to be talking about it every week, Lance. But this is kind of what I mean about we got to do a homework um, and we've got to pay attention to where the, the the data tells us things should go. But then we also have to look at the technicals and where things are trading because for periods of time, they may not have a lot of connection. Yeah, no, and like, let, let me throw something out at you that, you know, this is what you got to kind of think about. You know, it's always a time thing, right? So leading economic indicators, um, the inverted yield curve, all those type of things say with 100% of certainty, a recession is coming. Let me just throw something out there. What if the recession doesn't happen until the first quarter of 2024, mm -hmm. right? Um, nobody's thinking that right now, but that delay effect is always a possibility, right? We could have, you know, a pickup in economic activity for one reason or the other. Um, look, China. It, well, China, yeah, China's a great example. It was also a really warm winter, um, which means that, um, you know, home builders could build houses in the middle of winter. Um, you could do stuff in the winter that normally you couldn't do economically speaking. So that gives some boost to economic activity. People are able to get out and they weren't snowed in. So they were able to get out and, and go shopping and do some other things that maybe they wouldn't have been able to do otherwise. Unless you lived in Texas over the past week, from what I hear. Well, yeah, exactly that. Um, but, you know, those are those are things that can help you know, push that out. So, you know, let's go. I, I don't want to leave everybody thinking that I'm just this raging bull that I've just completely lost my mind. All I'm saying is, is that right now, the technicals say we're in a bull market. And because the technicals say we're in a bull market, you need to trade it like a bull market. Buy dips, buy stuff that's on the growth side of the ledger, buy look at momentum, look at relative strength, those type of things put some money to work. This is a good time. This has been, this has been a great month. The S&P is up 5% in January. So this is a great time to make some money in your portfolio. Does that mean that it's going to be that way all year? Well, historically speaking, whenever the NASDAQ is up as much as it is in, in a given month as it is, the year's been positive. Whenever you've had a Santa Claus rally followed by the first five days of January being positive and a 5% month of January, the year has always been positive going back to 1950. So statistically speaking, there's a lot of support here that says this market could be higher by year end. That does not mean that somewhere in the middle, you don't have a fairly decent sell-off and the market's down 10, 15% and then rallies back into the end of the year. Or we rally into the end of the year and then things fall off the cliff at the beginning of next year as that recession finally hits because of all the lag effect of the economy. The point is, is that, and we said this before many times, nobody can predict this market. If you're sitting at home going, I think this is going to happen over the next 12 months, I guarantee you, you're wrong. You might be right, but you're probably wrong. Right. Uh, hey, and just to be clear, we, we, you and I get emails daily from yeah. people who say, hey, you know, this is, I'm telling you, Adam, this is what's going to happen, right? Yeah. And I'll tell you, of, of the 10 emails I get, you know, every couple, every 48 hours on this, they're all predicting a different outcome with 100% certainty. Exactly. This is that that nobody can predict anything more than about three days in advance, right? Because we only have relative, you only have relevant data. All of this economic data you're talking about is all going to get massively revised. And this 500,000 job increase in January might turn out to be a 500,000 job loss by the time we get the revisions in next year. We just don't know. And that's the problem with all this data. So, you know, the point is, is that 
right now, things are trending bullishly. We need to pay attention to that. We need to give it deference for what it is, trade it accordingly, but then understand that things can change. And when things change, we'll need to change that accordingly. As, as Adam said earlier, this is going to be the year of the audible, and we're going to have to be able to make changes on the fly. I mean, just like any good quarterback, you know, I'm Tom Brady. I've just refused to retire. Uh, <laughs> and apparently, I think he just did. He just did retire for now, but it's not August yet. So right, right. And I actually heard that the Patriots are trying to sign him for a one-day contract. <laughs> I would doubt it. He needs to, look. There's a time he need to retire. He needs to. Yeah. But the the point is, is look, things are going to change, and we'll change accordingly. And look, our our job is simple is to make some money. So let's make money when we have the opportunity to it and protect it when uh, we need to. Yep. Great. Great. Well said. And the only thing I want to, I want to add to that is, um, uh, you know, Lance, what you do is you say, Hey, look, I, I've got my, my fundamental thesis, but I've got to look at the markets we have. And if the market is telling me it's going higher, <laughs> I'm going to, you know, put a portion of my portfolio to take advantage of that. You mentioned if we bounce off the 4,000 level, you're going to like, Go 100 for a period of time in equities. Right. Right. We're, we're, if that happens and we get that kind of a bullish bounce, I'm all in. I mean, right. I'm, yeah, you might have like 10 clothespins on your nose, but you, you you'll be doing it right. <laughs> and look, not not everybody uh, should do that, right? Like there are people that are much more risk averse, where they're just like, I, I, given all the fundamental data and stuff, I'm comfortable being in safety, and that's fine and cool. And if that's you, great. We're just saying keep some mental space opening that the market could rally a lot farther than you think while you're sitting on the sidelines. And that might be the right thing for you, which would be fine. We, 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 we're just trying to make sure that you don't get caught by surprise by that. And then all of a sudden feel like, oh, I, I've been an idiot. And now I got to chase the market and maybe get in right as it peaks, right? And set yourself up for the worst of both worlds, right? Yeah, you know, that's a great point because see, th this, is, this is the big interesting thing, right? Me personally, my personal personality is I am like uber conservative. And if I had my dithers, I would be in 100% cash right now. But that's just my personality. And, and I was raised, my, my father was, a, my fa both my father and mother were depression era babies, right? So they grew up in that environment and, then, and their parents were a product of the depression and they didn't trust banks. All the money was underneath the, literally in the, <laughs> underneath the mattress. And, you know, no debt, uh, those type of things. That's the way I was raised. And so that's my personality. You know, so the, so when I'm telling you that when this market does certain things, I'm going to go all in, you've got to realize that is an incredibly hard thing for me to do because it goes against every bone and fiber of my, of my being um, to, to be that way. But, you know, my job as a portfolio manager is to be agnostic. And, and the one thing that is always, you know, the important thing to take away, if you look at yourself and you go, I'm bearish, or if you look at yourself and go, I'm bullish, there's your first mistake. Don't be bullish or bearish because as soon as you pick a team, that's the team you're on. Right. And you're going to be right or wrong for the team. You know, that's why, you know, part of that's why our logo is an eagle, right? We want to just sit above everything and just look at the market, look at the economy for what it is. Be agnostic to the bull bear arguments. Throw those things out the window because all that they're going to do is get you on the wrong side of the trade. Just look at things for the way things are and then manage your money accordingly. And you'll do a lot better over time because you get rid of all of those biases to, to be on one camp or the other. 
All right, great. I, I'd love to keep talking about this with you, but I'm looking at the time. We, we still got to get a few more things before we wrap up. Um, right, and I want to get to your trades. Real quick before I do, I just want to give um, a quick little free resource to folks. Um, I was talking with Mike Maloney on his channel the other day over at goldsilver.com, and we were talking about kind of different ways to, to hold gold and silver. Um, we talked about, uh, I, I talked about this product here. Um, it's a, basically a, like a bill. It's the same size as, as a dollar in your wallet, but it's actually covered in real gold. So this is a fractional gram of gold. Um, and uh, it's just a really cool, interesting way to have gold. Instead of having like a gold-backed currency, here the gold is the currency. You literally pay for something with the gold just the same way you would with a, with a dollar bill. Um, it's not what I'm here to, to flag for folks, but if folks are interested in hearing more about this, um, I know the guys that make that product. Um, I, it's been a couple of years since I've talked to them, but I'd be happy to interview them on the channel if folks wanted to know more about that sort of technology and what could be done with that. But um, another great alternative way to own gold, as I've talked about uh, before on this channel, is through jewelry that's made of 24 karat gold or sterling silver um, that you know you get to enjoy while you invest in it, right? And uh, Gina Love, the woman who um, owns the company Overe, which is the, the jewelry company that makes jewelry out of this, this high quality 24 karat gold uh, and sterling silver. Um, she's given a couple offers to the wealthy audience before. She's come back with another offer uh, because it's Valentine's Day that's coming up really quickly. I'm glad she reached out because it kind of fallen off my radar and I, she saved me from getting in trouble with my wife. Uh, but anyways, I told her I would extend her offer to you guys. So um, it runs from now through February 8th. It's 15% off all full-priced items on uh, the overe.com website. And the code uh, to get your discount is AUVALENTINE15. And I'll be showing that here on the screen. So um, if you want to go, you know, please your sweetheart, uh, but maybe please yourself too by getting a little investable precious metals, uh, but your spouse is enjoying, uh, go take advantage of that discount. All right, Lance. Now, oh, yeah, go ahead. Before we get there, can I can I do a little sneak peek on something that I'm working on with your parent company? Uh, sure. Or do you want to do you want to hold off on it? You know, let's actually hold off on that if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah. You, See, you, you, everybody's like, "What are you talking about?" Yeah. I'll just tell you, we've got a new portfolio coming out, but we'll give you details later. Okay. I was going to edit this out. We'll keep it in as a real tease, and we'll let folks know. And the, yeah. folks, the reason why I said no is we want to give some real context as to what this is. But it's cool. It's very cool. You should be excited about it. You should feel teased. Um, all right. Well, let's get to your trades, Lance. Uh, so, you know, previously uh, we had talked about, I, I can't remember, I guess it was last week when I was on the show with you, we had talked about adding some companies to our portfolio that were um, good value oriented companies with very high dividend yields. Uh, we talked about Stanley Black & Decker, uh, Altria, uh, which have had some very nice, uh, T. Rowe Price, which is, was up like 12% on Thursday. Um, you know, these are good companies, good solid companies, really cheap fundamental value wise. Um, but you know, so those we've added in for this rally that, that we had over the last week. On Monday, we also had some trading positions in our portfolio that were basically ETFs that just tracked an index. And we sold those, raised some cash. We reduced our overall equity exposure this week about 8% going into the Fed meeting on Wednesday. Just And, and, and the reason was is that we just had no idea what was going to happen. Right. And you, and you said this last week that you yeah. were doing this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, the market could have been up 5% or down 5% and there's just no way to tell. So, um, you know, you just never know what Jerome Powell is going to say. Right. And, and so he came out and he was uber, uber dovish and 
at least that's the way the markets took it, even though it really wasn't. Um, the markets rallied big on Thursday. Markets gave it up on Friday. So, but again, as I said earlier, we also the reason we sold was is the markets were just extremely deviated from long-term means. We were three standard deviations above the 50. I know it's a bunch of technical crap, but don't worry about it. But we were very overbought. We were just very overbought. And so we're due for a correction. And I wouldn't be surprised if we have a correction over the next you know, week or two and markets get a little bit sloppy. Uh, we're going to be watching for that 4,000 price level on the S&P as a potential entry point, but we need to get this market to be oversold a little bit, work off some of this condition. If we break through 4,000, um, then we're going to be potentially talking about, hey, it's an audible change. We're getting more defensive because we're going to retest lows from last October. So that's really that line in the sand we need to watch over the next couple of weeks. Okay, great. Yep. So that's very important then, folks, this 4,000 level kind of the make or break, you know, do we bounce or do we break through to the downside? Because very different outcomes likely if either of those happens. And we'll be right. keeping you abreast on this program every week about what's going on. Um, all right. So basically this past week was sort of a wait and see week for you. You were saying yep. you just Pretty raised much. cash and okay, got it. All right. Um, all right. So uh, in in finishing up here, folks, just a couple of fun things to share with you. Um, one, I think a couple of weeks ago, I put up some of the recent stats for the, the traffic of the Wealthion uh, channel. Um, it continues to really just build steam in a way that, that continues to amaze me. Um, we just passed uh, 30 million lifetime views for the channel. This channel is a little over a year and a half old. Uh, that's actually a really big deal in YouTube world for getting that many views uh, in such a short period of time. Uh, we've just passed 230,000 subscribers, so we'll hopefully hit 250,000 subscribers uh, by the end of February. And so if you're watching and you're not yet a subscriber, help us do that by, by hitting the subscribe button below. Um, but I, I want to put this up on the screen, Lance. Um, I updated our uh, my competitive tracker, and as you'll see here, um, comparing us via Yahoo Finance, which is, you know, it's a really major financial media player. Um, we're about like, we're over 50% of the size of Yahoo Finance, right? I mean, yes, they're they're not quite two times as big as we, but we're more than half as big as them. And they're a freaking major uh, financial media company. That is a really impressive accomplishment. And then if you look beneath that, um, you'll see that we beat The Economist, we beat Forbes, we beat the Financial Times, and we beat Fortune. So, you know, we're getting more YouTube views than these, you know, long-standing, sometimes like 100-year-old, you know, established financial media brands. Um, and uh, it's wonderful to see. I, I'm going to do my, my, my entire strategy for this year is to just not screw this up. You know, we've got something really special here. And by we, I mean, you know, all you viewers, me, Lance, all the people that come on this program, we're all on this journey together. Um, but Lance, I wanted you to be here when, when I shared this information because you've been a big part of this. So I want to thank you. Um, and obviously, everybody watching, I want to thank you all because this obviously couldn't be happening without you people coming and watching this channel, but we're definitely creating something here that, uh, you know, is is providing an alternative to the regular established mainstream financial media. And there's something that's going on here that people really like. And um, I, I just want to remind people, you know, all I'm doing here is just listening to what you people are telling me. You tell me the people you want to see on the channel. You tell me the questions you want me to ask them. So, you know, this is this is your movement. And uh, I listen to everything that, that you guys tell me. So thank you. And please keep the feedback coming. 
because it's working. And uh, we'll just keep trying to see where this can take us. I like it. I like it a lot. All right. And then um, I just want to remind everybody in the same spirit, um, Wealthion's uh, conference, we do these two conferences a year, our, our first half of the year, one's now coming up. Um, and uh, the emails have gone out uh, telling people um, if you've been an alumni to a past event, how to get your alumni discount, if not, how to get the early bird price. So right now, whether you're a regular person or an alumnus, you can get the lowest prices possible. Um, alumni, your deepest discount expires this Sunday at midnight. So if you haven't yet acted, make sure you go act before then. And uh, if you're not an alumnus, but we're thinking about coming to the conference, you should act soon too. So you can lock in this early bird price discount, because as we get closer to the conference, we have to start raising that price. Um, real quick, if you haven't yet heard me talk about the conference, um, there's more details at the conference website, which I'll direct you to in just a second. But real quick, the lineup includes greats like Lacey Hunt, Mark Faber, Michael Pento, uh, Daniel Martino Booth, Stephanie Pomboy, uh, Nick Jurley talking about the housing market, Doomberg talking about the energy markets, Rick Rule talking about natural resource investing, uh, Craig Wishner, who's a farmland investor, he's going to tell you how you can get access to farmland in your portfolio, Mike Maloney obviously talking about precious metals, uh, we're going to have Lance, um, Lance we haven't asked him yet, but I'd like to extend an offer to Mike Leibowitz too, it'd be great if we can get him uh, involved too, we're going to have the guys from New Harbor on the channel, um, Lucky Lopez from the auto uh, interview I did with him two weeks ago that folks loved. He just signed on to come on in. So folks, it's as you can see, it's just an amazing congregation of excellent domain experts. Uh, it's going to be an incredibly valuable time. We're going to have as much interactivity there as possible, where not only are you going to get presentations and hear from these folks, but you're going to have the ability to interact with them and ask questions um, and, and get your answers live on air. So it should be a great time. If you've uh, attended one of these before, you know exactly how valuable this is. We've been able to not change our pricing, which is great in an era where everything else has been up double digits year over year. Um, so anyways, to learn more about this, as well as to register, just go to Wealthion.com slash conference when this video is over. Um, all right. Well, look, in wrapping things up here, Lance, um, you did, I think, the, one of the best jobs I've, I've seen you do on this program in terms of explaining the challenges uh, and the role that a professional financial advisor has to go through in this market to try to, you know, protect client assets and then hopefully grow them. Um, and, and by doing so, you really underscore what a challenge the regular investor has is just trying to do all this on their own. And so I'm going to just deliver my regular message, which is for the vast majority of folks watching this video, myself included, you know, who have real lives um, and maybe not enough expertise for what the market demands right now, highly recommend that you work under the guidance of a professional financial advisor who understands the macro risks and themes and trends and opportunities that Lance and I have been talking about here. And if you have one, great, stick with them. Like it's the best decision you can make if you've got a good one. But if you don't, or if you just like a second opinion from one who does, consider talking to one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses, maybe Lance and his team there at Real uh, Investment Advisors themselves. So to do that, uh, just go uh, fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. And what you'll get is a free consultation with these guys. We'll sit down with you. They'll do a free portfolio review. They'll answer any questions you want. They'll tell you what they think you should do. It doesn't cost you anything. There's no commitment to work with them. It's just a free public service they offer to help make people you know, more informed so they can position themselves more prudently today for what's likely to be coming tomorrow. Um, and with that, um, if you'd enjoy, if you have enjoyed this uh, weekly market recap, 
uh, and uh, you know, enjoy seeing Lance and I go back and forth, even uh, one one thousandth as much as Lance and I enjoy doing it together. Please do both of us a favor by supporting this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, buddy, I'm going to let you have the last word as we uh, let folks out the door here. There you go. Have a great weekend. See y'all next week. All right. Thanks so much, Lance, and everybody else. Thanks so much for watching.